welcome back to our series called The Way of Jesus, which is a series designed to answer the question, what is Christianity? Uh, Thankfully, Jesus, the founder of Christianity, answered that question for us in a teaching he gave during his time here called the Sermon on the Mount, and so we are spending several weeks uh, moving through it, looking at what Jesus has to say about all these different areas of life and topics that we all deal with and what those areas are going to look like if they are surrendered to Jesus. Um, This morning, we are going to talk about what Jesus had to say regarding money and possessions. So if you were here last week, um, thank you for coming back. Made it through the sex talk. Uh, and your reward is now you get to hear about money, the thing that, if anything, makes people more uncomfortable. So we're in Matthew chapter 6, um, shorter section. It'll just be verses 19 through 24, where Jesus said, <clears throat> Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. This is God's word. There's really four uh, kind of moves um, to the the teaching this morning I I wanted to pull. Um, First, we're going to talk about how money exercises power over us. Secondly, why it does. Thirdly, what it would look like to be free from that power. And fourthly, how we get there. So with that, we'll just hop right in and um, the first section of this teaching is, is going to be how money exercises power. In verses 22 and 23, Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So what Jesus is saying here is pretty simple. The way that the eye is designed to work is that if it's functioning properly, your eye takes in light and it allows you to navigate the environment you're in by that light. Um, what Jesus is saying here is that if your eye is not working properly, if your eye is bad, you're in trouble because that's the only part of your body that can take in light. And so if your eye's not working, then in a sense, your whole body will be full of darkness, regardless of how much light is in the room that you are currently in. The question is, what does this have to do with money and possessions? It's interesting. When when you look at, at this particular verse 23, 22 and 23, Everything Jesus says before this is about money. Everything Jesus says after this is about money. So it raises the question, why does Jesus seemingly interrupt himself to talk about eyesight? It looks like he's kind of changed the subject here, but he hasn't. What Jesus is doing in these verses is explaining perhaps the main way that money exercises power over people, and it's our first idea this morning. Number one, money distorts the view we have. Let me give you three quick kind of anecdotal stories. Years ago, I heard a story from one of my favorite pastors. You may have heard of his name was Francis Chan. Woo, indeed. Pastored a church out in Simi Valley, California, and his congregation tended to be very rich and affluent, and so he would speak very frequently and extremely convictingly about greed and materialism. 
And he was telling the story in, in one of his messages about how person after person would come into his office lamenting about how either a friend or a family member had changed. They just weren't the person that they used to be. And almost every single time, the thing that changed them was money. Person after person came into his office and talked about this. And then he kind of interrupted himself in the middle of his story, and he said, but you know what no one has ever said to me? And I was on the edge of my seat, because if you've heard Pastor Francis Chan preach, he just, I've never met anybody that could tell a story in as gripping a way as he did. He said, everyone always tells me, you know, Pastor Francis, money really changed them. But he said, not once has anyone ever told me, Pastor Francis, money really changed me. Uh, Similarly, Tim Keller, who I quote often up here, uh, pastored for about 30 years in Manhattan. And uh, he told the story one time of how, I believe it was in the 90s, he was preaching through, he's doing like midweek men's breakfasts, where he was preaching through the seven deadly sins. I'm sure extremely pleasant breakfasts. And his wife, Kathy, asked him, uh, she said, are you going to advertise ahead of time uh, which particular sin you're going to be talking about that week? And he said, yeah. And she said, all right, well, I want to make a prediction. The best attended week will be the week you talk about lust. The lowest attended week will be the week you talk about greed. Uh, And as wives so often are, she was correct. And personally, here's the third little anecdote, personally, I have been pastoring for a little over 10 years now, and in that time, people have opened up to me for whatever reason. It's just kind of, you know, the the deal with the office of pastor. People have a tendency to just open up to you about things uh, that they don't talk to many other people about. I have personally several times had people um, either confess things or just be open about things that by their own admission, they have not told a single other soul on, on planet Earth, which as a side note, is one of the things that I consider the, just the greatest you know, honors of the job. But I'll tell you that in over a decade of ministry, of all the things that people have scheduled meetings with me to talk about or confess or go over or get advice on or whatever it is, no one has ever scheduled a meeting with me to talk about their greed. And you can't do it this week now. It's cheating. So the question is, why is that? And the answer is not because none of us struggle with greed. It's because none of us recognize how much we struggle with greed. And that is Jesus' point here. Uh, He's explaining in verses 22 and 23 that greed and materialism, they're unique in the sense that they are a sin of the eye. When they take hold in a person's life, they tend to darken our eyes spiritually. That's why in Luke chapter 12, which is really a, a parallel passage to what Jesus is saying here, Jesus says, I taught on this years ago, we did a, a, a series through Luke's gospel called The Cradle to the Crown, and there's this one section where Jesus uh, is talking about materialism, and he says, watch out and be on guard against all greed. And if you survey Jesus's ministry end to end, you'll find he didn't talk that way about pretty much any other sin because he didn't need to. You don't need to tell somebody, watch out and be on guard against, you know, committing adultery or murder, because generally speaking, people are well aware of it when they are committing adultery or murdering someone. But according to Jesus, you don't know when you're being greedy, because this particular sin has a way of burrowing in a person, hiding itself, and blinding us to its presence. So here's what that means. If in hearing about the topic of today's message, you've kind of already at least partially tuned out 
because you said, well, you know, this really isn't something that I deal with, but I know a few people who do need to hear a message like this. Don't shoot the messenger. That's a really bad sign. Because one of the surefire signs of greed in a person's life is their total unwillingness to even consider its presence. It distorts the view we have. Instead of just leaving it there and moving forward, I thought I'd give you two examples of this. And with these examples, obviously every, every pastor that, that communicates in a local church context is trying their best to communicate in a way that is relevant and applicable to the people you know, that are a part of the church. So hopefully at least, at least one of these examples um, kind of speaks to you and hits you where you live. Just two examples of, of what this looks like. And again, these two things are so common in our culture, we don't even realize it until we talk about it. But first, let's say you are choosing a job. Uh, either you're, you're younger and you're entering the workforce, or maybe you're thinking about lateraling or something like that. When you're choosing a job, money has the power to get you to choose a job, not because you love the work, not because God has uniquely gifted you for the work, and not because the work meets a real need in the community that God's called you to be a part of, but simply because it gives you the most money. Uh, speaking of this, I came across this quote years ago. This is from Dorothy Sayers, a British essayist. She said, The habit of thinking about work as something one does to make money is so ingrained in us that we can scarcely imagine what a revolutionary change it would be psychologically and socially to think otherwise. In the modern view, people become doctors not primarily to relieve suffering, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. People become lawyers, not because they have a passion for justice, but to bring themselves and their family up in the world. Sayers was writing just after World War II, and reflecting on what she saw there, here's what she had to say. After World War II, one of the great surprises for many Englishmen who had, who had to serve in the army was that they found themselves, for the very first time in their entire lives, happy and satisfied. Why? Because for the first time in their lives, they found themselves doing something not for the pay or for the status, but for the sake of getting something done for us all. And the point is, just like Sayers mentions here, our culture, and if anything, this is only more pronounced now than it was you know, back in the, the, the mid-20th century, our culture so indoctrinates us with the idea of self-actualization that it's not, it's not even something that we talk about. It's not even something we vocalize because it's just kind of been, it's become almost like an unspoken, well, of course, this is how you do things. Um, we're so indoctrinated with this idea of self-actualization that we, that we naturally approach work through this lens of what can I get out of it? And, and really, for most people, we take almost no other factor into consideration. And for a time... You can survive on the adrenaline, especially if you know, you're, you're getting promotions or you're getting raises or you kind of move around to different departments. It's just new enough to, to kind of keep you distracted, almost to keep you medicated is what it is. But after living that way for long enough, eventually it leaves you feeling empty. And I shudder to think how many people near the end of their life feeling like they've wasted so much of their time here on work that is utterly unfulfilling to them. And what got them to that place, according to Jesus' words here, is that their eye was dark. Money darkened their eye. It distorted their view. Here's one example. Here's a second one. And this, if that one didn't hit you, then I think this hits everybody where they live. Secondly, money, <clears throat> it darkens our eye in the sense that it keeps us from asking hard questions about our lifestyles. Uh, 
the Bible makes clear the moment that sin entered the world, there's, th- there's this kind of natural insecurity in the human heart. And one of the ways that we tend to respond to that, just as people, is we look at other people and we compare ourselves to them and what they have and their lifestyle and all that stuff. Which that's been around since Genesis chapter 3, but specifically in the, the information age, the digital age, the age of social media, which has given us so much more insight into so many more people's lives, that instinct, that comparison mechanism basically gets dialed up to 10. And so what, what you have specifically in, in, um, in, in modern society today is, is people move through life constantly comparing themselves to dozens, hundreds, if not thousands of other people, comparing um, uh, our, ourselves and our lifestyles to them. And, and so no matter where we are in life, there's always people ahead of us. And no matter where those people are, they, of course, have, have people ahead of them. And so everybody's always trying to catch up to the people that are just above them. One of the things that that does is it keeps us from ever realizing exactly how rich we are. One really common kind of example of this is you can have a college grad, you know, fresh out of school, they're making, say, $60,000 a year. They do exceptionally well the first decade of their employment. They're making a quarter million dollars a year, but they don't feel like they have any more money because they're so obsessed with the people that have a little bit more than them that they're, they're constantly trying to keep up with them. What happens when you get locked into that way of life, and I'll just say, living in a culture as obsessed with image as ours is, we should all assume that to a degree, probably a greater degree than, than we even realize, we're caught up in that way of life. And, and one of the effects of that is that we are so focused on comparing ourselves and our lifestyles to those that have a little bit more than us or maybe have upgraded versions of what we have, that we never slow down long enough to take a deep breath, get objective, get outside of our context and ask ourselves questions like, do I really need to be spending this much money on me? Do I really need to be spending this much money upgrading my home, upgrading my vehicles, upgrading my, my image, spending this much money on my leisure, on on my pleasure, on my whatever it is? And isn't there a way that I could make more personal sacrifices so that I could be more generous with what God's given me? Now, again, in a culture like this, for an increasing number of people, it's unthinkable to even ask a question like that. We don't even want to go there. And the reason we don't want to go there, again, according to Jesus, is because money has darkened our eye. Now, I could keep going with an endless amount of examples that make us all feel really bad about ourselves, but let me just conclude this thought here and we'll move forward. If Jesus is right about this thing called greed, which, of course, I believe is right because I believe he's the Son of God, if Jesus is right about greed, that it will, in a unique way, that it it will hide itself in a person's life and it will blind you to its presence, here's what this means. I'm just being purely logical here, we cannot trust ourselves to diagnose it in our own lives. It would be the height of foolishness to look at what Jesus is saying here just in verses 22 and 23 and for me to to come away saying, well, I don't think I'm greedy and so I must not struggle with this and then we move on. Because according to Jesus, one of the symptoms of greed, if it's in your life, is your inability to see it. So what's the answer? What we need, and I know this is gonna sound crazy, what we need is other people outside of us that we give permission to speak into our lives about this. So in light of that, here's the question that that Jesus' words would call us to ask ourselves. And I I would just ask you this week, if you really pull nothing else from this teaching, would you just let this 
this question roll around in your head and just see what God brings to the surface in light of what Jesus is saying here. Have you given permission to anyone? I'm not talking about me or the elders or whatever. I just mean anybody else. Have you given permission to anyone in your life to speak into your life about your relationship with money? Now, if, if you are like me, I would love it if there was a section somewhere in the Old or New Testament where God just breaks it down and says, if you claim to be a part of my people, then give this much money to these you know, places or people or things or areas of ministry this many times a year, and then you don't have to think about it anymore. You've done generosity. Unfortunately, you're not going to find anything that clear cut in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament. What we're going to see over and over again is that God's people, people who have legitimately been saved by grace through faith in the name of Jesus, are called to a radical lifestyle of generosity. But here's the point. That's going to look different in the lives of different people. And not only that, it's going to look, it's going to look different at different stages in your life. So the question is, have you given anybody permission to help you figure out what generosity is supposed to look like now if you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus? Do you have anybody helping you figure out things like who should I give to or what should I give to or how much should I, could, should I be giving in order to constantly be going to war with greed and materialism? And with that, has anyone given you permission to speak into their life about these things? I, I realize in saying this, that's about the most un-American idea imaginable, but if Jesus is right, we're never going to stand a chance at dealing with greed in our lives by ourselves because we're not even going to see it. And as Muhammad Ali once famously said, the hands can't hit what the eyes can't see. That is the first time I've quoted Muhammad Ali, unless you count the 9 a.m. service. Final thought here before we move forward with this idea of, of money distorting the view that we have. I, when I was putting these, these questions, when I was planning to ask you to ask yourselves those kinds of things, I certainly, I wasn't looking forward to this a whole lot more than I was looking forward to last week's topic. I knew that it was going to make you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable talking about it. But just if you would have the, um, the security to be vulnerable and take a real self-inventory for a moment here, just hold on to this. If even the thought of asking somebody else those kinds of questions, if even the thought of inviting somebody into, your, into that area of your life economically, if that causes something to rise up in you, if that causes an immediate barrier or immediate offense or an immediate, you know, you can just tell there's a tension there and, and your first thought is, no, I don't give anybody permission to that and I, I, that's ridiculous, I wouldn't do that. I just, again, please don't shoot the messenger here. I just want you to see that's Jesus' whole point. That's the power of money. It, it, in a unique way, it has the power to keep us from even being willing to investigate the hold that it currently has in our lives. So first and foremost, money distorts the view we have. The second question, why does money in a unique way have this power? The answer is, is our second main idea this morning. It's number two that money reveals the things we love. I want to look here at a, at a very iconic verse. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is one of those statements that if you were raised around the faith, you probably heard your whole life. I remember the very first time I taught on this passage was back in the summer of 2012, and I thought I knew what that verse was until I had to spend some time actually studying it. It's one of those statements that it, it becomes more complex and deeper the more that you think about it. What Jesus is saying here with this phrase, where your treasure is, your heart will be also, he's saying, if, 
if the place that your heart really rests, and when the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the seat of your affections and your desires. Uh, it, it's it's the, the functional center of your life, what's actually controlling you. Jesus is saying, um, the place where your heart really rests is revealed by your money. So a couple of weeks back, I, I quoted uh, famous Swedish psychiatrist Carl Jung, who is the, I want to say he's the founder of modern analytical psychology. He has this great quote where he said, he, he was not a, a, a believer, but he said, people will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. And he's right. And we, we go to great lengths to avoid what's actually going on inside of us. And in light of that, what Jesus is saying here is if you want to face your soul very quickly, if you want to not burn a lot of calories getting to the point, all you need to do if you want to face yourself today is take an honest self-inventory and ask yourself where your money flows most effortlessly and most joyfully because that more than anything else will tell on, on your heart. It will tell you what, what's actually on the throne of your heart. It will tell you what's actually controlling your life, regardless of what you'd write down on a piece of paper, regardless of what you've been raised to believe or you know, would say you believe. Look at where your money flows most naturally and most effortlessly, and according to Jesus, you'll find out what's in the center of your life. Now, if we have the security to do that, what most of us will find, I've given teachings on this before, and I, I got good feedback on it, so I wanted to take a few moments here. What most of us will find if we just follow the money is that we generally speaking, and I, I think it's safe to say that everybody listening to this right now is going to fall into one of these two categories. Generally speaking, we have a tendency to look to our money to give us one of two things, either our significance or our security. Let me just real quick talk about how that manifests itself. If you look to money to give you your significance, then you will feel valuable as a person because of things like the clothes you wear, the car you drive, uh, the, the house you live in, the neighborhood you live in, the restaurants you can eat, the, you know, the circles you move in, the lifestyle that you can afford. Now, when you go down that road long enough, what will happen is you'll live on either side of a coin. On the one hand, you will feel inferior to and extremely envious of people who are ahead of you economically. And, and more than that, <clears throat> you might even find yourself hating people that you consider to be rich. Uh, one of the things, for, for whatever reason, it just seems like in the last several years, this has been more dialed up and more noticeable in our society. There seems to be a growing number of people that their, their posture toward people that they consider to be rich, it's not just, I wish they were more generous with what they have, the world would be a better place if they were. It's that they seem to have a certain disdain for people that they consider to be rich. And that, ironically, is a, it's a telltale sign that money has a real hold on your heart, that you hate people that have more of it than you do. The other side of this coin is you will feel superior to and you have a tendency to look down on people who are below you economically. When you look at them, it's not just that you'll see people that make less money than you. You'll see people who are lesser people than you. They're not as wise as you. They're not as strong as you. They're not as smart as you, as hardworking as you. They're an inferior person to you. Of course, obviously, very few people would actually admit those things out loud, but a lot of people go through life that way, and the reason for that, biblically speaking, is because they have made money their significance. If you make money your security, if you look to money to give you security, this is going to manifest itself in a totally different way. People who look to money to make them feel significant tend to spend it whereas people who look to it for security don't. And that's because when you make money your source of security in life, you will only feel safe as long as you have a whole lot of it lying around. 
You know, because for you, if, if you're in that camp, uh, money is what you look to to make you feel like you have a measure of control in an otherwise uncontrollable world. And, and again, you know, just take a self-inventory here and follow this wherever it leads. In my experience, it's usually people that come out of really volatile, really uncontrollable home environments early in life that have a tendency to do that because it's almost like there's this psychological switch that flips somewhere along the way where they basically swear, I'm never going to feel out of control again, and if I can have enough money, I'll finally feel in control. The problem with that, of course, as, as who knows how many people would attest, is that no amount of money can actually make us feel safe. No amount of money can actually give us the peace that the human heart is looking for. And so what will happen when you go down that road is you'll, you'll never feel like you have enough. You'll always feel like you need more. And in the process, your relationship with money is going to cost, it's going to destabilize your life and it's going to cost you the things that are so much more valuable than money. Things like personal relationships, things like your reputation, uh, things like your family. So, so here's the irony with the idolatry of money and the, the Bible's filled with stories like this. Whatever you, when you, when you and I make money an idol, which based on Jesus' teaching, we should just assume that we have. Here's the irony of all idolatry. Whatever we look to money to give us is ultimately what we'll lose in the end by doing so. For instance, if you make money your source of significance, then what's going to happen is it's going to change who you are as a person. You're going to become this kind of weird paradoxical blend of arrogant and insecure at the same time and, and basically People won't like you. You will lose your significance because of that. If you look to money to give you security, you're going to feel less secure than ever because what we all eventually discover is money cannot save us from the things we most deeply fear in this life. It can't save us from broken relationships. It can't save us from tragedy. And there, I don't care how great the 401, the pension, the benefits, the IRA, whatever, none of that can add another moment when the clock's up. We all eventually discover that. And we ruin our lives to the degree that we forget that. So the obvious question is, okay, if money does so easily have a hold on our hearts, if it so easily dominates us, controls us, distorts, and ruins our lives, then how do we break its power over our life? And I'm going to answer that question. But before I do, I want to give you a picture of what it would look like to be the kind of person that is free from the power of money, because that's what Jesus gives us here. He does so in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. But before I read it to you, let me just, let me just remind us of the resume of Jesus. Because I, to me, what Jesus says here is really surprising. All right? Jesus, we know, Christians believe that Jesus is God. And that means that before he entered into human history, he had all of the, all of the riches that we look to money to give us. Jesus had glory, he had power, he had beauty, he had love, he had honor, he had all of that. And when Jesus entered into human history... He did not do so in a rich family. He didn't even do so in a, in a middle-class family. Jesus deliberately entered into human history in an impoverished family. We know that. Not only that, Jesus lived his life here as a homeless man. He famously said that birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. God, when, when God became a human, he lived as a homeless person. It's a pretty amazing thing to think about. And as far as we can tell, Jesus did not own any property other than the clothes that he wore, which he even lost those as they were taken off of him and gambled over during his crucifixion. Now, the reason I, I walk us through that real briefly is when you consider that that was Jesus' relationship with possessions and money, I think what a lot of people expected Jesus to say is, 
you have to give all of it away and volunteer yourself for poverty. You have to completely relinquish all possessions and, and basically live this ascetic lifestyle. Shockingly to me, Jesus does not say that and the New Testament does not command that. A lot of the New Testament letters were written to churches that were made up of people that we know were wealthy, and never are the wealthy told, you need to become poor if you want to get saved. Of course, there's that famous encounter with Jesus and the rich young ruler, but, but overall, the New Testament does not moralize poverty. What Jesus says instead here in verse 22 is, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Now, again, that's a verse that looks like it has nothing to do with money or, or, um, or finances or possessions, but this word good in Greek has a double meaning. It also means generous. The literal definition of this word is openness of heart manifesting itself as generosity. So I say this to offer this to you. When Jesus is talking about what his followers and their relationship with money is going to look like, what Jesus is holding up is the ideal here. He's saying a person who has really been freed from the power of money is someone who gets a generous eye. So this is not materialism that says, get more. This is not asceticism, which says, get poor. What Jesus' ideal is, whatever you have, get generous exactly where you are. What Jesus is describing here is a person whose, the lens through which they look at life will never be the same. That in the midst of a culture that indoctrinates us to look at the world through the lens of what we can get, what we can gain, what we can amass, what we can accrue, what Jesus is saying is one of his followers who's really been transformed by a relationship with him is going to get a generous eye. Meaning they're going to look through life for opportunities to practice the generosity that they have been shown. You will never look at life. You'll never look at other people. You'll never look at what you own the same way again. Now, if I were you, what would be helpful to me is an illustration of what that looks like. And I'm about to give you an incredibly heavy one. Uh, the reason I'm offering this is because I cannot think of a better example of what Jesus is talking about than this. In the end of the movie, Schindler's List. Some of you probably know where I'm going with this. And you can actually, if, if, you're, if you're interested this week, you can just YouTube the last five and a half minutes of the movie. I, I looked it up this week. It's tough to, to watch just this five and a half minute clip without getting emotional. At the very end of the movie, the main character, Oscar Schindler, is brought out among a crowd of Jewish people that he saved at great personal cost to himself. And a Jewish man from the crowd steps forward and he hands him a ring with, the, with a, um, an inscription from the Talmud on it. And it, it, what it literally means is whoever saves one life saves the world entire. And he places it in Oscar's hand and he drops it and he picks it back up and and he's obviously moved, and he shakes the hand of the man that gave it to him. But all he can bring himself to say, all Oscar Schindler can bring himself to say is, I could have saved more. I could have gotten more out. And the man that handed him the ring said, Oscar, there are 1,100 people who are alive today because of you. Look at them. But he can't do it. All he says is, I threw away so much money, you have no idea. And he walks over to his vehicle and he puts his hand on it and he says, I could have gotten 10 people for this. And he steps in front of the crowd that was gathered around him, silent. You can hear a pin drop. And he pulls the pin off of his chest and he realizes it's made of gold. He said, they would have given me two people for this. I know they would have given me at least one. And he starts to get emotional and he essentially collapses. And what you have there is the perfect picture of somebody who develops what Jesus would call a generous eye. 
the lens through which they looked at other people, the lens through which they looked at their possessions, the lens through which they looked at life was never the same. Now, by his own admission, he developed a generous eye too late, and it led to all kinds of grief and all kinds of regret. And I say all this to say the whole reason that Jesus brought up our relationship with money in the Sermon on the Mount, the whole reason that Jesus so famously often talked about money and what that relationship needs to look like for his people is because Jesus doesn't want us to get to the end of our lives with that sense of regret and that sense of guilt, realizing that we wasted it all by either hoarding it or spending it entirely on ourselves. So the question that all of this raises is, how can the power of money be broken in our lives? How can we develop what Jesus refers to as a generous eye? That's what I want to close speaking to because that's exactly what Paul is dealing with in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. <clears throat> Before I read this, let me, let me tee it up for you. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is writing to, he's writing to a church full of largely new believers. None of them were really mature. Um, really, the world at that time was full mostly of new believers because Christianity as a movement was new. And he's trying to motivate these people to practice this, the same kind of generosity toward the poor that God had practiced toward them in Jesus. But the way that Paul goes about this is so key. And I, it's not an exaggeration to say the way that Paul went about it literally changed the world. I'll explain in a minute. When Paul is writing to these people, he does not say you should give to the poor because it's the right thing to do because that wouldn't have made any sense to Roman citizens. Greco-Roman culture did not value things like mercy and compassion and pity toward the poor and the weak and the suffering. That was a shame and honor culture that respected strength. So that wouldn't have made any sense to them. Paul doesn't say you should give to the poor because God's going to get you if you don't, which would have just appealed to their fear. He doesn't say you should give to the poor because it's going to look so good in the eyes of other people, which would, have, which would have just appealed to their pride. And pride and fear might be able to get us to do something in a mechanical way a few times. It's a poor motivator for the human heart, and it will never lead to lifelong transformation. Instead of all the things that Paul could have said, here's what he said. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 8. He says, I am not saying this as a command. And I just want to stop there. I so admire that because Paul could have written as a command. Paul was an apostle. Paul had seen the risen Christ. Paul had suffered dearly for the sake of Jesus. He was the only reason that there were converts in the city of Corinth. This is a man that wrote 13 books of the Bible, and yet he begins by saying, I'm not here to beat you over the head with this. I'm not saying this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. And what I'm about to read to you next, literally, not only transformed the Roman Empire, it transformed Western civilization because it created a group of people who, through their generosity, literally changed the world. This is one of the first things that the first followers of Jesus were known for. Here's how Paul applies the gospel. Verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, you might become rich. Continuing that thought in chapter 9, verse 6. He said, remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly 
or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he scattered. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. We're almost done, but I, I, I want to begin ending with this. If you're listening to this, this whole series is about what is Christianity. If you're listening to this and you have any desire to live a life that, that pleases Jesus, if you have any desire to walk this life out that Jesus invites us into that we call Christianity, and you look into your life and you know that you are not practicing the same kind of generosity that God through Christ has shown you. If, you. if you want to grow in that, you have got to learn to speak to your heart the way that Paul does here. You've got to learn to bring yourself before God and before his gospel and say, how can I live like this in light of what Jesus has done for me? Jesus had all of the things that we all look to money to give us. Jesus had infinite beauty, power, glory, honor, love. And he willingly laid all of that down. He willingly impoverished himself so that we could be as rich as he is, so that we could have the one kind of wealth that actually makes you rich. How can I do anything less with my life than what Jesus did with his life for me? How can I not live to extend the same generosity to the people that God places in my life that God through Christ has extended to me? Until we learn to apply the gospel that way, Money's going to continue to control us. It's going to continue to distort our lives. We'll, we'll hoard it. We'll spend way too much of it on ourselves. Or else, maybe we'll force ourselves to give it, but we'll just become bitter as we do so. Only the gospel can free us from that because the gospel is where we find the significance and the security that we look to, but our money will never be able to get us. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we'll close with this. <clears throat> you probably heard me say this before. <clears throat> But there's exactly one thing that Jesus did not have before the cross that he could only get through the cross. Exactly one thing, and that's you. Hebrews says that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. That means that Jesus hated every moment of the cross. That's why he was, he was sweating drops of blood in the garden saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's why he's calling out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hated every moment of the cross, but Hebrews says he endured the cross and he, dis he, he, he despised the shame, but he did so for the joy that was set before him. That means there was something in Jesus' heart something that filled him with so much joy that he was willing to go through the horror and the agony of the cross. And the only answer to what, it, what that is that brought him that much joy is you and me. You can't say that was his relationship with his father. He had that before he went to the cross. You can't say it was love and glory and beauty. He had that in an infinite supply. The, the thing that produced so much joy in him that he was willing to go through with the crucifixion was you. And when you realize that, you realize there's the security. There's the significance. Who cares about the lifestyle I can or can't afford? Who cares about the money that is or is not in my account? There's the significance that I've been looking for all my life. There's the security that money will never be able to buy me. And when that comes home, when you and I realize what we have in Jesus, we stop looking to money to be our significance, to be our security, and we become free to do what God has called his people to do with it, which is to give it away. And the concrete promise of Scripture is that as we do that, then and only then 
will we see our money turn into real riches. You'll give to the poor and you'll see their lives repaired. You'll give to your friends, to your family members, to your neighbors. You'll see real community being formed. You'll give to charity. You'll give to ministry efforts. You'll give to missions. You'll give to this church. You'll see people having their lives transformed by Jesus because of your generosity and you'll know this is real wealth. This is real wealth. So we're gonna end today by celebrating communion, which is a physical act God has given us that can remind us of what he has done for us and what it means. And during this final song, Cynthia leads us in. You're welcome to come to the table, to take the bread, to take the juice, and just take some time during this last song to reflect just you and God. And I would ask you during this time to really think about Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Just take some time, get honest before God, get vulnerable, and ask God to bring to the surface of your life anything that needs to be dealt with. And in that, ask that he would make his gospel so real to you that you would see it for this cosmic, infinite act of generosity in which the Son of God impoverished himself so that you could be rich. Ask God to make that so real to you so that you and I can live out this life that he's called us to live. Let's take communion. Let me read again 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Go ahead and take the bread and the juice. And when you're done that, you can stand with me as I close this in prayer. Father God, thank you for Jesus. That though he had the riches that we're all looking for, he let them all go for our sake so that we could be rich in him, so that we could have an inheritance that we had no right to, so that we could have hope, so that we could have joy, so that we could have peace, so that we could have significance and security that money will never be able to buy. God, at the close of a teaching like this, um, that probably, probably made every one of us uncomfortable at some point, I just ask that you would help us to see how rich we are or how rich we can be in Jesus, that we would stop living like people who don't have the inheritance that Jesus died to make available to us, that we would be people that practice the kind of generosity that only people who know how rich they are can practice that we would see the security and the significance that we have by grace through faith in the name of Jesus so that we could practice the same kind of generosity to others that you practiced to us through Jesus so that when we get to the end of our time here, whenever that is, we'll know that we honored you with what you gave us. Nothing greater than that. Please help us to be the kind of people, even starting today, that live out these generous lives that once upon a time followers of Jesus were known for. You can, you can do it. You can create that in us. You can give us the ability not just to give because we have to, but to do so with joy. And that's what we ask, Father. Please make us generous for your glory and our joy. In the name of Jesus and God's people said, amen. Have a great week.